Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. We're picking up where we left off at the end of the last episode. Officer Doherty has just confirmed that it's a double murder. He has seen both the bodies. He has seen Mr. Borden's face, which is terribly disfigured from a violent attack. The assailant had gone after him with a hatchet. He had gone upstairs and seen that Mrs. Borden had been attacked from behind and was lying face down, dead, on the floor of the guest bedroom. He's run off to a local business, a funeral home, and he has called his boss, Marshall Hilliard, and he has said it's a double murder, elderly couple, Mr. Borden, well-known businessman, wealthy. This is a residential neighborhood on a busy street. Get as many officers up here as you can as soon as possible. Now, Doherty did not leave any officers on the property to secure the scene of the crime. And Hilliard, instead of sending him back and saying, keep the public off, tells Doherty to come down and report directly. And what we know is that Hilliard does not go up to the scene of the crime for another three to three and a half hours. He stays in the police headquarters and waits, waits for people to come down and give him reports. And instead of going up there himself, He delegates the responsibility of organizing the investigation to his second-in-command, Assistant Marshal Fleet. So he gets word to Fleet. Fleet is up at the Borden home around quarter of 12. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the major officers, the major officers, patrolmen, etc., who played a role in this investigation. And there are about a half dozen of them. There were many, many officers that investigated that were on the property that played smaller roles, but there are a half dozen that play really important roles in this case, and Fleet is one of them. There was a terrible lack of leadership in this case, a lack of planning, a lack of forethought, a lack of imagination. I can't imagine why Hilliard didn't get up to the house as soon as possible. It's not like he's on the phone, on the radio, talking to all these different officers constantly. He's not because the Borden home doesn't have a phone. And this was in the days before people had walkie talkies and radios. If he wants to be in charge and that's his job, he's in charge of this police department, this police force. If he wants to be in charge, that's why he's the chief. He should be up there. He should be running the show. And instead, he assigns this investigation to his number two, Assistant Marshal Fleet. I don't want to be unnecessarily flippant or cruel or sarcastic, but Fleet was a disaster. He was an idiot. He was incompetent. He was totally in over his head. Like Hilliard, he strikes me as a bit smug, a bit overconfident, a bit full of himself, totally lacking in imagination, but even worse, lacking in common sense, lacking in some basic ability to sit down and plan out some kind of approach. That reflects not just on Fleet, but it reflects on Hilliard, the guy in charge of the police department and the guy that he has placed right below him in the chain of command. The two of them together are terrible leaders. They should not be doing these jobs. These are the wrong men for these two jobs. I don't know how else to put it. And when you look at the officers, when you read the police reports, when you read the testimony, when you read all of the material that's out there, the books, Knowlton's letters and documents, the newspaper reports, etc., 
there's one officer that stands out as being head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of professionalism, in terms of ability to think things through, in terms of focusing. And that's a guy named Harrington. And Harrington does get to the scene of the crime, but he doesn't get there soon enough for the purposes of solving this case. He gets there about 20 minutes after 12. So we're going to talk about him and we're going to talk about the role that he played because it was important. Unfortunately for the police, he got there too late. And unfortunately for the police and for the prosecution, either he didn't speak up and assert himself sufficiently or he was just overruled by Fleet, who was there on the scene giving orders. Let's talk about what Fleet and Hilliard should have been thinking. And we'll, we'll put this on Fleet's shoulders because he's the guy that's there on the scene. He arrives there about quarter of 12. He talks to Lizzie a couple of times. I believe he has two interviews with her. And the most important thing about Fleet's interview with Lizzie is that she, when he refers to Mrs. Borden as your mother, Lizzie says, seems to stiffen and say, she's not my mother, she's my stepmother. My mother died when I was young. Fleet makes a point of writing about this in his report. He makes a point of telling Hilliard that this really struck him. It struck him that she was cold, that she was composed, that there was no sign of grief, and that she seemed to have some kind of dislike, perhaps even hatred for her stepmother. What a strange thing it was for her to say in the aftermath of a double murder, her father's been horribly murdered. She's the one that discovered her father's body. And she makes a point of correcting Fleet and saying, that was not my mother. That was my stepmother. To his credit, Fleet picks up on that and that makes a big impression on him. Harrington interviews her around 1220, 1225, and he writes a really important entry into his report where he talks about her attitude. He talks about how cold she is. He talks about how in command she is. She spends the whole interview in her bedroom on her feet. She gives him a stiff curtsy at one point when he says to her, why don't you hold off on talking to any officers for the rest of the day? This must be horrifying to you. You need you need to adjust. You need to take a breather. You shouldn't be talking. You've got information. We can hold off. We can wait till tomorrow. That's when she gives him this stiff curtsy and says, no, I think I can answer questions and talk about this just as well today as I'll be able to tomorrow. And he is struck with this feeling of horror and revulsion that something is wrong. And while he's talking to her and she's acting this way towards him, her friend, Alice Russell, is sitting. Lizzie is standing, composed, emotionless. Alice Russell is sitting in that bedroom, hyperventilating and wringing her hands. Harrington looks at the contrast and he writes something to the effect of it gave birth to a thought that was most revolting, that she, at the very least, knew more than she was telling us. Now, why is this important? It's critical. You've got Fleet. The one thing that Fleet does right, the one thing that Fleet hits on of all the mistakes and bungling that Fleet does on that day, the one thing he hits on is there's something wrong with Lizzie's reaction. This is not natural. It's not normal. Now, in addition to that, not only do you have Harrington and Fleet coming away with this impression of her, 
But she also tells both of them, as she has been telling everybody, and as her story evolves. And it's when I say evolves, I mean it's been essentially the same story with some variations, but there's an evolution. But the central part of her story, her alibi as to where she was when her father died, what she says is, I was out in the yard and then I was in the barn and I was up in the loft of the barn. And what were you doing there? I was getting iron or irons. I was getting tin to fix a screen. That's what she says the first day. Over time, two, three, four days later, she's telling people that she was actually up there looking for sinkers for her fishing equipment, for her fishing line, because she had been planning to get out to Marion to spend some time with these friends who were renting a cottage at the seaside in Marion. And she did still intend to go there. And she liked fishing. And so she was thinking ahead and she'd gone up into the loft because she thought there was some lead and there might be lead sinkers. There might be lead in a box up in the loft that she might be able to use to make sinkers. So that becomes her story. But either way, whether it was tin or iron or lead sinkers she was looking for, either way, she's telling people a basic story, which was at the time my father was killed, I was out in the barn up in the loft. So here's another thing that both Fleet and Harrington find very hard to believe. It's a hot day. It's in the mid to upper 80s. It's a bright, sunny day. And the loft of the barn is hot. There are windows and there's a little hay door where you would have a pulley and you'd lift the hay up and put it up into the loft. You'd pull it through this door in the loft of the barn. But all of those are closed. The windows are closed. The door to the loft, the hay door is closed. And they find that out pretty quickly. Look at what they have for information. The way she's behaving, the lack of grief, the composure, the coldness. And then this story about being up in the loft of the barn when her father is killed. And they know already from talking to Bridget that there's a really narrow window as to when the father could have been killed. So they can focus on that. They can immediately try to figure out where Bridget was and where Lizzie was. And they quickly find out and determine that that Lizzie claims she's up in the loft of the barn and Bridget says she's up in her bedroom resting. So what do they do with this? What do Harrington and Fleet do with this information? I'll tell you what they didn't do. And this is hard to believe. They had to have thought to themselves, this is a rich family. This is a woman who's pretty independent, but she seems a bit arrogant. She seems a bit sure of herself, maybe too sure of herself. Let's get her isolated. Let's interview her. Let's go over this with a fine tooth comb. There's something not right here. And let's do it now. Because it is a rich family, they're going to get a lawyer involved pretty quickly. And once a lawyer is involved, that lawyer's going to interfere with the investigation. He's going to act as a buffer. He's going to prevent us from talking to her. Now is the time to do it. Let's get somebody to interview Bridget in detail, in full. And let's get somebody to interview Lizzie. Let's get Lizzie somewhere quiet. Let's find a place in the house or on the premises where we can sit down and question her and go over the morning with her. Let's find out where she was. Was she in the house from the time that Bridget left to wash the windows at 930 until her father came back at quarter of 11? Yes or no? Make Lizzie answer that. Where were you exactly in the house? When was the last time you saw your stepmother? Get all this straight. 
Now, they're lucky. The police get one bit of luck, which they don't really take advantage of. But they do get a lucky break. And that is that at quarter of 12, the county coroner, Dr. Dolan, happens to be driving his carriage up 2nd Street. Just pure coincidence. Quarter of 12. And he sees a crowd starting to collect on the street. He stops the carriage, gets out and goes into the house because he thinks maybe something's happened here. It's just a gut instinct. It's just a hunch. He goes in and he finds out about the murders. So nobody had to send for him. He's there. It's quarter of 12. And he goes in and Bowen is there. Dr. Bowen's there. So Dr. Bowen can show him the bodies. And Dolan, even though Dolan doesn't use a thermometer to get the temperature of the bodies, which he could have done, he does determine, and it's pretty clear to him right away, that Mr. Borden was killed after Mrs. Borden. So he's in a position immediately to tell the police, if they haven't figured this out for themselves already, that even though Mr. Borden was discovered first, he was actually killed second. Once the police hear that, and they would have heard it pretty quickly, Dolan would have gone up, looked at the state of the blood blotting on Mrs. Borden, felt her temperature, and said to them, she clearly died first. I can't tell you how much before, but clearly she died first. The blood on Mr. Borden is still dripping. It hasn't really coagulated or clotted. Dark, it's hard, it's, it's clotted and coagulated on Mrs. Borden. So now they know that there's some time difference between the deaths. Now they know that this wasn't somebody who went in and killed these two people within a matter of a few minutes. It appears already that there was a significant time gap or there may have been a significant time gap between the murders. So they have to pause and think about that. They have to say to Dolan, give me your best estimate. How much time? And then they have to say, what does this mean? Two brutal, savage, horrific, rageful attacks, unimaginably horrific, with a time difference, with a gap. Who would have done this? Where would that person have hidden? And why would somebody wait? Why would somebody who would commit a crime like this, and how could somebody who committed a crime like this have the self-control to hide or wait? until he had the opportunity or she had the opportunity to commit another crime. They've got to be thinking about all this. And the more they think about this, and the more they realize that the only person who appeared to have been inside the house for Mrs. Borden's murder that they know of is Lizzie. Lizzie was either in the house when Mr. Borden died or was across the driveway in the barn when he died. They've got to focus on her. They've got to take advantage of that. And she has given them a reason because of the way she's behaved. She's given them a reason to focus on her. And so the first missed opportunity, the major missed opportunity, is that they didn't isolate her and interrogate her in detail. They don't pin her down as to where she was. And on top of everything else, they know right from the start they're hearing from her, from Mrs. Churchill, and from Bridget that Mrs. Borden had a note that she went out. Well, she didn't go out. How do you, wait a second, what do you mean she had a note? No, she, if she did, she never left the house. She's in her work dress. She never changed. She's not in the kind of dress she would have worn in order to go do a sick call. 
Where's the note? It's not in her pocket. Nobody knows where it is. Who's actually seen this note? It turns out nobody has. Who actually heard Mrs. Borden say, I got a note, somebody's sick, I need to go out. Did Bridget hear it? No. Bridget's very clear. No, all I know is what Lizzie told me. Did Mrs. Churchill hear it? No, Mrs. Churchill wasn't around the house until after Mr. Borden had died. She doesn't know anything about this except what Lizzie told her or what Bridget told her. And what Bridget told her was only what Bridget learned from Lizzie. So now the police are being told there's some mysterious note that nobody can find and that Mrs. Borden had told Lizzie supposedly that she was going out to pay a sick call on somebody. And that is just a giant mystery. And nobody can find the note. It's not in the wastebaskets. It's not in her pocket. Why don't they sit down? It's another reason they should be sitting down with Lizzie and asking her, when did Mrs. Borden tell you this? Where were you? What time was it? Did you hear somebody come? Were you aware that somebody had come? Did you hear somebody at the door? Where in the house were you when you had this conversation with her? Tell me everything you did and said to her. She said to you every interaction you had with Mrs. Borden from the time you got up in the morning until you last saw her. Give it to me second by second. Tell me everything you did from the time you got up until you raised the alarm. You got up at 10 minutes of nine. You raised the alarm around 11.10. So that's in two hours and 20 minutes. Tell me everything everything you did. They don't do that. A number of officers come through and interview her in sequence. It's not coordinated. They're not talking to each other. They're not comparing notes. The interviews are like five minutes long. Where were you when it happened? Does your father have any enemies? Can you think of anybody who might have done it? Did you notice anybody around the house this morning? Is there anything else you can tell us? Where were you at the time? That's it. That's all they ask. Where was your stepmother? What do you know about her whereabouts? That's all they ask. There's no detailed questioning, despite the fact that she's acting strange, despite the fact that she's giving two officers the impression that something is seriously wrong with her reaction, despite the fact that she's telling them a story that they find incredible. A woman in her early 30s in a long dress a dress that has full sleeves that goes all the way down to her feet, goes out into a barn, a hot, dusty, enclosed barn, goes up into the loft and dawdles for 10 or 15 minutes. How convenient is that? How convenient is it that she does something that just doesn't sound believable, that gets her out of the house for the 10 or 15 minutes it takes for somebody to kill her father? The whole thing is fishy, every aspect of it, all of it. And the more they look at it and the more they think about it, the more uneasy they are. And there's blood everywhere. There's blood in the guest bedroom. There's blood all over the furniture. It's soaked into the rugs. There's a hank of Mrs. Borden's hair that's been chopped off and flung up onto the bed. It's half the size of of a fist. There's a chunk of her skull on the floor about the size of a silver dollar. The whole back right quarter of her skull has been destroyed, crushed. She's been attacked. There have been multiple hatchet blows to the back of the head. Whoever committed these crimes would have had blood on him or her. It's almost certain 
And this is confirmed by the doctors, all the experts who end up investigating the case and testifying, they all confirm. What was Lizzie wearing? What was she wearing? By the time Harrington gets there at 1220 and interviews her, she has changed out of her original dress. She's now wearing a pink wrapper. Harrington is the only one who gets a good description of what she's wearing after she changes. He wasn't there in time to see what she was wearing before she went up to her room around noon and changed. And what is shocking here, what's unbelievable, is that despite all the bad vibes that Lizzie is giving to Fleet and to Harrington, they don't ask her to turn over the dress she was wearing earlier in the morning. And the officers who arrive before she changes, because there are cops in there before she changes, Mullaly gets there, Doherty gets there, Allen gets there, Medley gets there, Fleet gets there. I believe they're all there before she goes up, upstairs to change. Certainly the first three or four that I mentioned, not one of them describes the dress. Not one of them gets out his notebook and writes a description of the dress that she's wearing, just in case just in case they need to send that off to be examined for bloodstain. Nobody describes it. Nobody notes it. And Harrington gets there too late. And this becomes a huge issue in the case. This becomes a critical issue. Now, I realize in doing this episode, I've done it in a way that's a bit scattered. And maybe that's okay, because the day at this point has started to become very confusing. It's confusing to everybody, I think, except Lizzie and perhaps Bridget, because they know where they were and what they were doing that day. But everybody else is trying to piece it together. And you've got members of the, the community, members of the public now on the property, wandering around, going into the barn, poking around the property. Some of them have actually talked their way into the house. Somehow they've gotten past Sawyer. You've got not just Dolan and Bowen for doctors. Other doctors are starting to arrive around noon, between noon and one. You've got other doctors. Word has gotten out. You've got more and more officers arriving on the scene. And there's no real sense of direction in terms of the investigation. So the next episode, I think what I'm going to do is talk about the key officers and what they did when they got there. I've talked a little bit about Fleet and Harrington. I have a little bit more to say about them. And then I'm going to talk about the other officers and how they tried to go about investigating this case during the first hour or two after the alarm was raised, after they start to arrive at the scene. I hope you join me next week. I look forward to talking to you then. And until then, take care. Mm -hmm.